We are in a series on the book of John, but uh, I forgot to get the music made that I could cue for when I go on a rabbit trail, because uh, we're about to go on one, so it'd kind of be, I don't know, I'm thinking maybe Wayne's World, you know, like, rabbit trail, rabbit trail, Bob's going on a rabbit trail, so here we go, we're going on a rabbit trail, this is, this is because of where we're at in John, we just finished up John chapter 13, we saw as Jesus went through the uh, the time where the, 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 the having supper together with them and Judas's betrayal and him washing their feet and all of that, and then finally saying, this is the commandment. This is the new one. You know, you've heard treat someone like you'd like to be treated. You've heard that kind of command. But now he says, it's love one another, and here's how, like I loved you. So that's a whole new commandment, and it's a whole new way of looking at it. And so that kind of got me thinking, well, how do we do that? How does that work out? He says, behold, people will see you and they'll say, behold how they love one another when they see a church. They'll say, behold how, and that's not what people say a lot right now. So how can we do that? And so I want to talk about uh, today about life in community. How does that look? What's important here? What can we be talking about? And I started thinking about this in terms of why did Jesus do what he did? Uh, when I first became a Christian, uh, I, I'd been a Christian for a few months, and uh, my old, one of my older brothers, he, he, we, we saw each other, and he says, hey, man, let's go on a road trip. You and I, let's go on a road trip. What do you say? And I uh, didn't have a job at the time, and so I was real open to road trips, except, except <laughs> I didn't have any money. And he says, no, no, it's, no, no worries there. It's not going to be that expensive. It's all taken care of. What I didn't know was my parents were funding this road trip in hopes that their son, who they were sure was going to end up in prison, would actually turn into a good human being. Me. We're talking about me now. And, and that's, not, that's not exaggeration. <laughs> they really thought I was a lost cause. And so when there were some glimmers, when I actually went to church one time on my own, they were like, Wonder of wonder, miracles of miracles. You know, they were so excited. And so my older brother, who was the first one in our family to become a Christian, and, and she said, they said, please do something with him. And he proposed a road trip that we would go. Why? Why did he do it? Because we needed to see Disney World? No. Need to travel? Wanted to spend a month living off of fast food and beef jerky? No, no. He wanted to spend a month and pour into my life. He wanted to uh, disciple me intensively for a month. And so we drove up all over the East Coast, down into Florida. And, and every morning we'd get up and he'd say, hey, let's memorize a verse together. And we'd get in the car and we'd memorize a verse together. And then we'd stop somewhere for lunch and we'd have a short Bible study. And then we'd share prayer requests, and we'd talk a little bit, and then we'd hit the road again, and we'd go stay with some uncle or stay somewhere else or whatever. And it changed my life. It changed my life. And so right now, what I want us to talk about is how Jesus went to the disciples, and he invited them on a journey. Let's look at this. It says, as Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew, and they were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and they followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father 
and they followed him. Now, what's going on here? We see this rabbi, Jesus, and he's gathering followers. Now, it really helps for us to understand how that actually happened in those days. So this is a little bit of history that we're going to go into, and I know you're just so surprised that I would want to go into some history. But here's how discipleship worked in the first century A.D., and actually how it still works in in very conservative Jewish circles. What would happen is they would go to school as kids, and, and boys and girls would both go to school, but after a while, the girls' schooling stopped, and, and for most of the boys, the schooling stopped, and they said, okay, you've learned how to read and write. Uh, you've learned the basics. Now go get a job, apprentice with someone. But for the really sharp ones, they'd go to another level of school, and then after they were done, they'd say, okay, great. And then for the ones who were the cream of the crop, they would say, you have the potential to be a disciple of a rabbi. Here's what you do. You go find a rabbi that you would like to follow, and you go and propose to him that you will become his, in a sense, apprentice. You will become his disciple. And what would happen is it would usually take about a week, and, and, and there would be a lot of going back and forth, questions and answers, while the rabbi would grill this disciple on how well he knew the Scripture, how well he knew Torah, the Mishnah, how well he knew the teachings of the Jewish faith. And then at the end of the week, if he was th- thought, yeah, you know what? You can do it. You can be one of my rabbis, one of my disciples. But for many, it was like, no. So, so these disciples, the cream of the crop. Now, we see here that Peter, Andrew, James, I mean, I mean John, they're working. You know what that means? They didn't make it. They didn't make it to the top, to the cream of the crop. They are not the cream of the crop. They're the ones that got out early and got a job. And they are not asking Jesus if they can be his disciples. This is a total turn. The whole thing's turned upside down. Jesus is asking them. And, and, and I want to put this in a way, I mean, it's, it's not exactly like this, but in a sense, Jesus is picking out the losers, He's not looking for the most intelligent. He's not looking for the wisest. He's looking for the ones that ended. And they said, hey, you're a great guy. Go get a job. Right? You can't make it to be a disciple. And so Jesus turns the whole thing upside down. This shows us what kind of God we have. First of all, he turns everything upside down. He loves to do that. And then he seeks out those who have given up, who are not seeking. We have a God who pursues. And so he tells them, I want you to be my disciples. He's saying to them, hey, guys, let's go on a road trip. Let's go on a road trip. Peter, you've been to Disney World? <laughs> let's go, right? Let's go on a road trip. He's inviting them. And the reason was community. Jesus is thinking, I'm going to develop a group of people who are going to change the world. Now, if you think about it, what's the best way we would go about developing some people we thought could change the world? Who's the best and the brightest? Who's the most accomplished? We need self-starters. We need people who work good without supervision. We need, we need, we need, we need. And these guys fit none of that. Jesus goes and takes the ones that nobody else thinks it would be possible. And what happens three years later? 
We're in John 14 now. We're getting ready to start John 14. Three years later, he's got this small group. There's no financial resources, no budget, no building, no clout, no connections. All the things that you would think would be needed for a successful movement are missing in this instance. Just a few ordinary people, some men and some women. And 2,000 years later, here we are. 2,000 years later, I love to talk about this because it boggles the mind sometimes to think about it. All over the world right now, millions and millions and millions of people are worshiping, singing, listening to the word, being taught just like this. I mean, fitting with their culture, fitting with how they operate, but it's the same thing all over the world. It's amazing when you think about it. It's unbelievable. It's supernatural. And, you know, one of the things I think about when I think about some of these things, I try to think about it from the opposite side. I try to think, what did Jesus not do? Right? He didn't go to them and say, hey, I'm putting together a band of disciples. Look, I know you guys are busy, so just make it when you can. All right? You can skip the group parts because I know some of these people are a pain. Peter talks too much. Thomas is negative. Judas, don't get me started on Judas, right? He didn't say that. In fact, this, and we talked about this the past few weeks. Isn't this amazing? Jesus picked Judas. He selected him. He wanted him. That's amazing. That's a, knowing what he would do. And he chose him. So Jesus is not saying you can skip the hard parts. We, we can do this by Zoom a lot. He's saying, you know, it's, it's, not an, it's not an online study course. He's not saying that. You don't have to just read the text and attend a couple of lectures and just get on a self-study plan. What did Jesus make them do? He said, we're going to have community. From the very beginning, he modeled it and he taught it to the last night of his life where he prayed specifically for the oneness of his disciples. He knew what was going to happen to them in the next few days. And he said, God, hold them together. Give them a oneness. Like what? What does he say? Like the oneness that we have. That's amazing. That's amazing. And so he says, this, I'm going to start this community. The credibility of his ministry was going to rest upon it. They'll know you are my disciples by the way you love one another. He says, I'm putting everything on this. We're going community, groups of people who love each other and pray for each other and lean on each other. So I want to talk about, just whip through a few things, some of the dynamics that can only happen in community. The first dynamic is Jesus is uniquely present in community. He's always present there. There's a specialness, though, about community. It says, for where two or three come together in my name, there I am with them. And so there's this idea of being together that creates something where, where the, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. It's a synergy that becomes amazing. You know, years ago, one time we were on vacation, and my oldest son, Derek, was just a little kid. He was just a little kid, and I was, gonna, I was going to grill. And so I got a bag of charcoal out. You know, and I dumped like three gallons of lighter fluid on it because I like it to grow. You know? And I'm hitting that. And, and my son is just like, oh, this is really cool. You know, and, and that's that whole obsession with fire. Let me tell you, parents who have young kids, your kids, they, 
they kind of get obsessed, and it'll end after about 40 years, I think, something like that. It's just going to be your whole life, so get ready for it. And so he's asking me what's going on. I said, well, see these little charcoal briquettes? See, these things, when they get hot, when they're all together, they create this tremendous amount of heat that helps us cook our food. I said, but if you pull one briquette out and stick it over on the side of the grill, it will quickly cool and fade. They have to be together for the fire to burn. And when they get isolated, they cool down. Jesus is uniquely present in his community. I was reading, I forgot to put down the name of the person. Personalities united can contain more of God and sustain the force of his presence much better than scattered individuals. We are just briquettes. We need each other. And when we are together, Jesus is uniquely present and there is a strength there. We need each other. We need each other. This is why the the writer of Hebrews wrote this. He said, let us consider how that we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as is the habit of, as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Now, I know what can happen here in something like this. There's people watching from home and they're like, oh, Bob's talking to me. Now he's picking on people. I'm not. For those of you at home, I'm not. Dealing with this whole COVID thing is a thing between you and God. But we do need each other. And when some aren't here, we miss it. We need it. And so we're like these briquettes. We glow hotter when Jesus is present. And, and I, this, this is the kind of thing where I know I'm telling you things that you already know. This is not like something that people, oh, really, Jesus wanted community. Who knew? No, you know this. But I want to remind you, because it's important for us to remind each other of these things, that we need each other. And many of you could testify to this on how, how your life has been affected. You've gotten comfort and guidance and hope and strength in community with other people. So that's the first one. Here's the second one, second dynamic. Community prevents spiritual drift in our lives. In Proverbs, it says, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. One woman sharpens another. It works for all of us. We need each other, and it prevents spiritual drift because we can easily lose, cool off like that briquette that's set aside. Years ago, I had some, some guys that I was getting together with uh, on, uh, on mornings, certain mornings real early, and we would exhort each other and, and uh, encourage each other and sometimes even rebuke each other and confront each other. And it was a powerful experience for all of us. And then seeing that happen and hearing people even talking here about some of your small groups, some of the small groups here, and, and, and the bonds that are being formed and the love that's growing and how people serve each other. And so much of service within a church springs from within a small group as they minister to other people. They will say, behold how they love one another. That's what's going on. Why am I stressing this? Because this runs contrary to one of the biggest myths of our day. And the myth is that it's possible to do spirituality kind of in a self-study method. Most of the resources that you see on spirituality out there talk about how it's you, it's all up to you. It's, it's a purely individualistic thing. And nothing could be farther from the truth. We've seen a lot in the headlines recently of how Things are fading in churches and people are not believing. And the the biggest growing uh, um, 
uh, group is called the nuns. They don't believe in anything at all. It doesn't mean they don't believe in spirituality. They just say, I can do it all by myself. I don't need anybody else. Kind of like spiritual free agents. I can find God anywhere. So I don't need to go to church. But Jesus called us to community. He said, this is important. He said, let's do a trip together. Let's learn together. Let's pray together. Let's grow together. Let's confront each other. Let's serve each other. Let's be on mission together. That's what community is. And that's what he called us to do. And I'll be honest, I'm just like anybody else here. If I'm not involved in that kind of stuff, I have a tendency to drift. I have a tendency to coast, to sit back. I'm prone to it, and so are you. We're made that way. We need each other. Third dynamic, the Jesus community is the one place where it is fully safe for us to take off our masks and to know the healing power of being known and loved, to stop hiding. I know you're supposed to make your points short, pithy phrases, and I just blew it on that one, but there's too much there, right? There's just too much there. It's a place where we can pull. When we're in community, we can take our masks off. We can let our guard down. We can let people see who we really are. And that brings healing that can only come, only come from being known and being loved. That's how that works. You know, in the book of Genesis, right from the very beginning, they were naked. The Bible tells us. And that's not some sort of a fashion statement. What that's telling us is they have the, they're fully open, fully known, no secrets, no masks, fully revealed and fully loved. And then came the fall, and then came the shame and the hiding. And that had to be taken care of. That's why I love how and we, we, we move and we see Jesus, and it says he takes care of the sin and the shame because we can struggle with those. And we have that poignant verse, Genesis 3.10, I heard you in the garden, Adam said, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. That's what happened. We become hiders. We become people who wear masks, right? And I know church can be one of those places that that happens so easily, right? I had, I had five little kids. I worked at a, it was a different church. I worked at a church, we would come Sunday morning, and all these kids are all, I don't like that. reaching back and wanting to grab and shake, you know, and you and we pull in the church parking lot, and it was like a miracle. Praying, praise the Lord, brother. How are you? Living for Jesus, man. It's what's important in life. Oh, you have such a wonderful family. Oh, I love them. They're so great. Right inside, I'm going demon, demon, not sure, demon. Yeah. I, and what happened? It would, it would just be a mess. No one would know. No one would know what was truly going on. And this is not what Jesus wants for us. We can hide. We can put on, and, and, and we can talk spiritual talk, right? We can, we can talk. The, we know the words we're supposed to say to each other. We're hide behind religious language. I read a story a while back. One day, a kid comes running in the living room where his mom is. She's meeting with the pastor of the church. And because he's so excited, he doesn't even notice the pastor. He's holding a dead rat in his hand. And he says, Mom, 
you know, you just imagine looking. You'll never believe it. I was out behind the garage, and there was this rat running around. So I picked up a rock, and I threw it, and I hit it. I hit the rat, and it just laid there. So I came over and kicked it. And then I hit it again. Then I picked it up, and I threw it against the garage door. And he's sitting there holding this rat, and all of a sudden, you know, the pastor there is like, it looks good kill, right? So he goes, and then the dear Lord called him home. Right, because we know the language we're supposed to say. We know the language that, that everybody goes, oh, yes, that's good. You know, and we can just hide behind that because we can get good at hiding. Years ago, not long after I'd become a Christian, I was going to a church. It was a good church. And, and I was new, and I, a new Christian, so I was just kind of watching. And, and I, I'm grateful for that church. It taught me a lot. But I noticed there were some people who would just come every week Right? Every week they were there, they sat in the same pew, they smiled the same smile. They talked about the weather or their job or sports. Something really superficial, week after week, year after year. And nobody knew them, really knew them. Nobody knew that for some of them, they were dying inside. Nobody knew what he or she was afraid of. Nobody knew what he or she dreamed of. They didn't know maybe that someone was trapped. Maybe someone was addicted. This is not Jesus' plan for community. And every, every once in a while, someone would crash, right? A marriage would end. Somebody would have an affair. A child would run away. Or someone would just stop coming. And people might say, huh, I wonder what happened. But nobody knew. Nobody knew. Because the masks were on the whole time. It's not wrong to talk about the weather or your job or the Washington football team. Those three are okay. Dallas, no. Just want to make sure that's clear. I'm from Washington, D.C., and it goes strong in my blood. Um, I don't know, even know why I went to that. It's just dumb. Anyways, nobody knew. They just disappeared. And I, we all can struggle with this. I still struggle with this. I can hide so easily. There are areas that I know I need God's help, and I'm going to need it until I die. Because there's always a tendency to want to look better and stronger and smarter, whatever, than I really am. I don't like to be wrong. I could get my feelings hurt. Sometimes when people ask me something, especially if it's about the Bible, and I don't really know, I, kind of, I could kind of figure it out how to fake it to make it look like I know. Because I don't want anybody to know that I don't know. And I can struggle with pride. I need community. I need community. That's why this is so important. Therefore, confess your sins to each other. He says, because of what I've been telling you, James, all this stuff I've been writing. We studied the book of James about five or six years ago, and and just everything, he's summing it all up because of everything I've been saying. Therefore, because of all that, confess your sins to each other. That's deep community. And there have been times in my life, in small groups, or in meeting with, with, with other people that I 
cherish their uh, opinions and, and, and what they think, where I've talked to friends, I've confessed things, and they to me, and sometimes it can be dark and embarrassing stuff. Don't get excited. I'm not going to tell you what that stuff is. I'm not going there, not yet. But, but when you can become vulnerable, when you become vulnerable and you begin to share the deep things with people, it is, there is an incredible freedom that comes out of that. There's an incredible relief that comes out of that. There's incredible growth that comes out, comes out of that. Why? Because you've revealed your soul to someone and they've accepted it. And they love. And what happens? You, I'm telling you, you change because of it. You become more graceful. You've seen this acceptance and now you want to use it with other people. You've seen this kind of love, and you want to share it with other people. It changes us. It changes us, and this is what's so important. It changes us from the inside out. It doesn't change us from the outside in. That's just superficial change. I love my kids. Sometimes I joke about them, but I love my kids. But they gave us trouble sometimes. But boy, on a Sunday morning, we could dress them up and trot them into church. And it would be me and my wife and five kids marching behind us like the Von Trapp family or something, you know? And it looked so good. People just got, and I just, I remember it was oh, such a weight that would be on my shoulder. People would come and say, you have such a great family. I'm like, no, no, I don't. Please believe me. Oh, you're so humble. No, it's not humility. I know my kids. And so when, when you could confess things and you could share things and people could, <laughs> kind of like I'm doing right now. <laughs> oh, my kids are going to hate me. Um, if you suddenly you go, I'm free. I don't have to live up to those standards. I don't have to worry about it. That's what deep community is. You, I, I, this is something that I think is so good for us to learn. You can only be loved to the extent that you are known. If you're putting on a mask and you're faking it and someone says they love you, they, they're not loving you. They're loving what your image is. They're not loving you. And that's the worst. Because then you got to live up to it all the time. And it's just an incredible task to have to have laid upon your shoulders. And so what happened in the early church? What happened after Jesus was gone? Then he was raised from the dead. And the disciples were like, oh my goodness, now it all clicks. We understand it all. We understand the Old Testament, how it's pointing to Jesus. We understand that. We understand what you meant at the Last Supper. We get it about the washing of feet. We get all that. And what happened? And day by day, con continuing with one man mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were ta taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. There's a change. That word one mind is a cool word in the Greek. It's, it's homothomadon, and, and what, it, what it means is it means this idea that there's all these people going to the same place in unison. They may be coming from all over, different areas, different countries, whatever, but they're all making it to the same place. And so that they all have a goal in mind. Uh, sometimes it's used uh, concerning music and how there can be all these different notes and, and alone there's not much to them, but you put them together and suddenly there's beauty and there's order and there's purpose. And he says, this is what happened to them. They started having the same mind. That's why 
I mean, that's why when people are missing, we suffer at a church as part of a community because there are, suddenly there are notes that are missing from the music. And he says, they came together with gladness and sincerity of heart. Sincerity of heart means they were open. The masks were off. And they decided to go honesty and tell each other the truth about themselves. And so all of these things pointed leading up to the fourth dynamic. The Jesus community is where we give love like Jesus loved. You know, Jesus said this a lot to his disciples. We looked at this not a couple weeks ago. John 13, 35, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. John 15, 12, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. John 15, 17, this is my command, love each other. Jesus is harping, he's hammering this on them because he's saying, this is the key, this is the key. This is gonna make people go. I don't know what is going on there, but there's something that's so incredibly attractive, something that is beautiful, something that is so powerful, I want to be a part of it. One time years ago on one of our our, um, um, membership classes, there was a guy who'd come maybe a month or two, and and so we were just talking, and uh, I said, you know, I'm glad you want to become a member. Tell me a little bit about yourself. What's, what's your relationship with Jesus? You know, just tell me a little bit. And he, he said, uh, I don't know if I believe in Jesus. And I said, oh, you want to be a member? I said, eh. And he said, but there's something here, and I want to be a part of it. Now, is there a membership fee? And I said, oh, no, this isn't a club. <laughs> this isn't a club. But he was just, he recognized something. There's something going on. I want it. He hadn't put it together yet. So I told him, I said, well, you know, let's hold off a little bit on this membership. You can sit in the class, but we need to talk about it more. And a number of years later, he came to me and said, okay, I, I know now I, I do want to be a member. Because it all clicked. And it happened. He saw it. But what started it? Behold how they love one another. And Jesus emphasizes this a number of times because the whole credibility of his mission rests on this. It's not that you're smart. It's not that you can build something bigger, impressive. It's that you love one another. This is a community of love. And so we look at this and we have to think for ourselves, am I going to do this? And and I'll be honest with you. If you begin to, to work on being in community with people, being in a small group, gathering some people together, maybe just for times occasionally of prayer, whatever it is, it, it's not effortless. It's not immediately deep and rich and problem-free, and intimacy doesn't happen quickly. It can be hard. It can take work. But when you work hard at it, it becomes something powerful. I mean, think about Jesus' small group. You talk about a bunch of people who are incompatible with each other. I mean, we talked about this. Simon, remember Simon? What was he? You remember what political party he belonged to? Simon the Zealot. The Zealots were the terrorists who wanted to overthrow the Romans. The Zealots were the ones who invented IEDs. Romans knew, especially in Galilee, if you're walking alone at night, you will get ambushed. Soldiers have to go with you. Soldiers have to go at least two at a time. 
because they jump out of the darkness along the roads and they kill people. That's what the zealots were for, violent overthrow. And the way it's going to happen is we just start murdering Romans. And Jesus went to Simon the zealot and said, I want you. We're going on a road trip. We're all going to room together in different rooms. And then Jesus went to another guy, Matthew. Remember Matthew, the tax collector? The only people zealots hated worse than Romans were tax collectors because they were Jews who had gone over to the Roman side and cooperated with the Roman. Think about this. They cooperated with the Romans to get the money that the Jews owed in taxes. They were their tax collectors. And Jesus goes to Matthew, the tax collector. We're going on a road trip. I want you. You and Simon are rooming together. This is going to be fun, right? Pick these people. You talk about all these different types of people. Can you imagine? We tend to romanticize it a bit. Jesus puts them in a small group, and they have lots of problems. And this, we, we see this. What happens? James and John, they come, <laughs> they come with their mother, right? Jesus, my mom wants to ask you something. Okay. She says, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, I want him on your right hand and him on your left hand. Right? Now, they did that in front of the other disciples. Can you imagine them? Simon, could you kill them for us? We'd appreciate, you know. There were, you talk about a dysfunctional small group that had to work hard to create love and intimacy. Holy mackerel, it's, it's unbelievable. And so Jesus talks so much about servanthood it was because of his dysfunctional small group. He had to teach them this. He didn't come up with this plan for community for perfect people who had natural chemistry with each other. He knew what kind of people were going to come. People like us, right? And starting with this small group, I mean, we'll never go wrong by realizing the hunger of a human being just to be loved. You'll never go wrong with that. I read this story. And, and the first time I ever read it, I thought it, I thought it was one of these made-up myths. And then I read this book a while back, and the guy documented how the writer of this story, he found that writer's daughters, and that it really is a true story. So uh, I feel more comfortable sharing it with you. And you, you may have heard this, because it's pretty popular. It's called The Whisper Test. And the author writes, I, I, I grew up knowing I was different, and I hated it. I was born with a cleft palate. And when I started school, my classmates made it clear to me how I looked to others. Children can be cruel. When schoolmates asked me what happened to your lip, I'd tell them that I'd fallen and I'd cut it on a piece of glass. Somehow it seemed more acceptable to have suffered an accident than to have been born this way. I was convinced that no one outside of my family could love me. There was, however, a teacher in the second grade whom we all adored. Her name was Mrs. Leonard. She had a wonderful personality. Annually in school, we had a hearing test. For those of you that are older, you'll remember this. You went and stood across about eight feet from the desk of the teacher, and then the teacher would whisper something and see if you could hear it. That was the hearing. Real scientific, right? Real scientific. And so she writes, 
I dreaded this, to be up in front of the class. Finally, it was my turn. I knew from past years that we stood against the door, we covered one ear, the teacher sitting at her desk would whisper something, and we'd have to repeat it back. Things like, the sky is blue, or do you have new shoes? I waited there for the words that God must have put in her heart. Seven words that changed my life. Miss Leonard said in a whisper, I wish you were my little girl. That's all she said. I, in a sense, I choose you. I choose you. You know, that's what blew people away about Jesus. As we study John, as we study the gospel, looking at Luke, when you see him as he interacts with people, the lowest people on the societal scale, the lowest status people, the lowest class people, and he just showed them love. And those people, and I'm one of them, he wrecked their world to an extent that they would never recover. Because he just walked around saying, I choose you. I choose you. I want you to be mine. Will you join me? And he started this community. And his idea was that this whisper would spread as more and more people said, I choose you. I choose you. I want you to be in my community. I want to know you. You know, and, and, and I think about this place here, First Church. We could be this place where no one stands alone, where nobody hides, where nobody drifts. Where people in these little communities, just like then, they received a vision for what God wanted them to do beyond, beyond the walls, beyond the walls of this place. And the whisper started to spread all over the peninsula, all over the world. And, and, and things are happening. I don't want to make it sound like things are happening. We're seeing stuff like this happen. It's amazing. But I want to say maybe you've been in drift mode and you need this. I encourage you to pray and talk to someone about being in community because you are in for an adventure with God. You can start talking to God and say, God, who do you want me to whisper to? And I, and I want to tell you, if God's speaking to you about this, man, contact. I'd love to talk to you. You can fill out a card and drop it in the back. You can send me a, a message, an email here at the church website. Text me. This is important. This is what we're made for. We can't ignore the voice of God. You know, I think about the disciples as they reach the end of their lives. You know, John, who wrote the book we're studying, he, he was an old man exiled on the Isle of Patmos. And I just think about him looking back to when it all began on the edge of the water when Jesus said, I choose you. John thought he would be a fisherman for the rest of his life, and he became a fisher of men for the rest of his life. His life changed tremendously. I had ideas of what I thought I wanted to be before I became a Christian, and I can guarantee you this is not one of them. This was totally out of the blue, totally unexpected, what God did. And I want to continue it. I want to continue it. I think about them. I look back just like they did at those first initial times. And I think about this, how this can change our lives and change the world. Because it can happen. It can happen again. It can happen here. It can. 
God hasn't lost his power. Jesus didn't go to a different planet. It still works here. Community. Love one another as I have loved you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It teaches us. Thank you for this, the book of John and what we've learned and what is coming up is going to be such life-changing truths for us. And here, Lord, as we stop and we turn aside for a moment and just think about what Jesus did and how he did it and how we can change when we emulate this idea of deep community. Lord, help us to want it. Help us to pursue it. Help us to navigate the tough times when it doesn't come easy. And Lord, we pray now that as we leave this place, you may bring people into our lives this week that we can whisper to, I love you. You need Jesus. Where we can be a witness and a testimony and we can be an encouragement to other people. Give us those opportunities, Lord, and give us the courage to take them when they come up. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.